Hello, Rantbox TV watchers. Uh, once again, I'm Simon and I'll be your host again for this week. As usual on Rantbox Fridays, the panel and I will be bringing you commentary on a range of different topics of focus on social issues and also some topical points as well. Um, we're going to be continuing our discussion that we started last week on uh, cancel culture because we've, we thought that we just didn't have enough time last time. So um, I've put together some more questions um, and I believe we can kick off with the first one in regards to a particular um, issue that came up a few years ago. So this can be taken by John, I believe, which is do take backs, deleted tweets and apologies seem hollow to you? Thanks, Simon. Um, this is a strange topic because the question implies that I need to have a particular viewpoint on these people. People that I've not met, but might hold stations of office, maybe um, in schools, factories, industry, whatever. Um, so I think maybe the deeper question is, do the public at large believe these mm. take backs? Um, there was an incident with a director called James Gunn, who you may or may not know was a uh, prominent director um, for Marvel doing uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a franchise. And um, some years ago, uh, he tweeted um, some, I don't know how really you could really put it across, but I'd say homophobic um, jokes from the early 2000s kind of school of comedy. Um, and that didn't necessarily go down well when he was subsequently axed from being at Marvel and then, um, or Disney rather, and then was brought back. So in answer to your question, um, I, I, I don't really necessarily feel that you can generalize about this kind of thing. There are different situations which, you know, I'm more likely to believe in James Gunn saying that he's transformed his opinion on how he deals with things in the public discourse than say Piers Morgan. Um, but yeah, there is uh, there's more to talk about in regards to your question, but I wanted to know how everyone else felt about it before we move into uh, what I'm calling for now story time of John, because it's quite an in-depth <laughs> piece of um, information that I'm going to give up. But yeah, how does everyone else think about that question? I agree with what you've said. I think it, I think it depends on who it's come from that's when it like you can think about whether you believe it or not so like you said about James Gunn you're more inclined to believe in than you are someone like Piers Morgan or someone who you think's just saying it to get back into popularity and they've not really learned the lesson or educated themselves about it. I think um, we we were all talking about um, uh, ContraPoints video, I think we were discussing that between the last episode and this one and I think we've all kind of gone away and watched that. I think an interesting point made during that video is that um, sometimes I think, we, especially with because of so much of cancel culture that we've been talking about is Twitter related um, with Twitter, sometimes a take back is worse than saying nothing at all um, in some circles and, and it can be even the most genuine of people I think can really struggle to, to give a convincing apology and I think some people just aren't allowed to apologize that's you know for better or worse and and as Alice says you know from someone like Piers Morgan or Katie Hopkins you're just like eh, do you really care and then there are other folks like James Gunn where you kind of want to be on their side but it, it's hard to say I think in that in that regard yeah, exactly. yes yeah what 
uh, criteria we're using to decide who, you know, who's who's genuine and who's not. And that's such a difficult one. And, you know, I don't know how much it really is for us to all have to make such a decision, you know, like really like who's sincere and who's not. That, that seems crazy even to, to ask as a question. Yeah, sure. It was one of my ones, so it could be. Sorry. But uh, <laughs> Simon, but, you're crazy. The news is in. Deadpool's my spirit animal. Um, so we do have uh, guys like the likes of uh, Kevin Hart, who I know. Um, obviously, I've followed him as a comedian for many, many years. And if you don't know, um, he was due to be the Oscars host in 2019. But uh, some tweets resurfaced from 2010, 2011, which had a homophobic slant towards them. Now, he was speaking to Joe Rogan on his podcast last year. And obviously, he's had media training. But I also think he's thought about this a lot because he disappeared for four to five months. And he's thought about it and how he was going to return. And he sounded genuinely upset with himself first and foremost, that he upset people because his feeling, uh, what he wants to bring to the world is an idea of joy and happiness. He doesn't want anyone to feel upset. And what he said back in 2010 to 2011 isn't necessarily what he is now. But as most of you have also mentioned, it also depends on the person. Piers Morgan, another example. I don't really believe he would ever say he's sorry or take it back unless there's a six-figure uh deal on the table or more does anyone john sorry and you wanted to add to this as well yeah i think that what we did last time in terms of cynically speaking the format was great and so i'm gonna do the old kind of what i'm gonna talk about is something that i'll kind of end like the discussion with so we'll come back to this point later on not a problem so Okay, so this is actually a really good segue then going back to sort of the Piers Morgans and so forth with um, when should a public figure stand by their statement? And this is Alice. So this is a difficult one. It's building on what we're saying. Like, you know, it's to do with the person and the individual context. So if it, it all comes down to what we see as like morally kind of right for me. So if someone's saying something that's harmful or discriminatory, then that, that's not okay. Like, you know, they shouldn't stand by that. And we, like we've said already about people who've released tweets years and years and years ago, we, we live, we learn, we educate ourselves, we get better, we become better people, social attitudes change. But the issue comes from like um, when you're getting people who are cancelled and it's not a form of, calling each other out it's a form of like um like social shutdown and for sometimes it's just it's not really on the right stuff it can be when someone's trying to question something or they're trying to ask questions about a topic they don't know and they get cancelled straight away without a getting answers to the question and b like just before anyone's took into consideration their point of view and when i was researching this earlier like, you know, there was a lot of stuff up talking about, you know, we shouldn't cancel people because we don't know why they disagree with us. So when we're saying when should the public figure stand by their statement, we need to take in context, that's number one. But also 
we need to kind of normalize the questioning and questioning society because that's how social change comes about and if we're just cancelling people who are speaking up about important issues then we're we're just discouraging people to share their opinions and we're kind of we're discouraging like um social change in that way if that makes any sense um, shouldn't there be also the question of where they're choosing to have their discussion? I mean, if you walk into like the hell pit that is Twitter and you ask certain questions, why be surprised that the internet will give you certain answers in the vitriolic way that it does? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We need to kind of know our platform, know our audience. But again, if we make it this kind of culture, where we are saying, no, you can't ask that because everyone's scared of being cancelled for saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong question, then we're shutting down all them other social spaces in which we can do it safely. That's fair. Um, and maybe we should talk about a specific example because it, for me, I, I can't really get it out of my mind. But if you know what Twitter is and you use it as a way of actually delivering, it's normally Twitter, as Ollie was saying earlier, and a lot of our examples have been, um, that people will choose to have a really nuanced conversation in a place where there is no nuance. And if you're doing it there and then shit goes wrong and you call foul, I, I'm not sure how to really deal with that. Anyone else? Yeah, I would say in specific examples, if you mean just how we generally use it, for example, with with me, when I'm on Twitter, there's been many times where I've misunderstood somebody or someone's misunderstood me. And um, I've had this really great um, opportunity for dialogue in, it's it's actually, I don't like the fact that, it, but it surprised me how patient some people are with with trying to find that, um, that place where we can reach um, either uh, an agree to disagree type situation or um, that time and space to really uh, hash it out if, if you even if you just look at my time and it's all there and I left it there on purpose even though there's some parts that make me squirm where I really didn't get my point across well there's been so many times where people have been patient enough to wait till I actually got it and vice versa so that that's um that's obviously uh, gives me faith in Twitter so what did you call it uh help it um, yeah, I've cleaned up my act. Uh, last episode, it was something else. Um, it has to be said that there, there is something to be said for people who have a need to talk about these things on social media and work out their issues there. And I'm, I find it highly dubious, especially if they've got a prominent um, platform. What they're saying can be reappropriated by mainstream media that is less investigated, that is less interested in um, and will happily give them an open ed to, to talk about uh, race or, or gender or sexuality in a way that supports non-investigative um, uh, attitudes, which should be changed, which should be um, definitely uh, investigated at a, a, a secondary school level, whether it be um, items that the Black curriculum, the charity is suggesting should be in the syllabus or gender and sexuality being something that we talk about in a far broader um, fashion um, or, or rather specific fashion for a larger community which has now got visibility.
maybe I need to step in for, for Matt, who's absent today, and just reiterate a point that I know that he would make were he here, which is that obviously, um, in continuation of what John is saying, um, Twitter and its algorithm and the way it's based is based on a system of returns. So the more uh, attention something gets, the more it is presented to other people. And that does encourage, yeah, that does encourage a system where, um, you know, I think decontextualization is, is, is important because you want to get people angry because that feeds the beast. And yeah, there are days, I think, um, when I am with John and I think the best thing Jack Dorsey could do is burn Twitter to the ground. And then there are other days when I'm with Reshmo and I'm like, okay, like, I think that people are essentially quite good natured. And I think given the right space and the right rules, they can... Um, they can, you know, actually have a good discourse. I think I mentioned last time places and spaces like Cora, where the moderation is okay, still a little bit random, but there are strict rules about, you know, be nice, be respectful, the BNBR rule and things like that, where that becomes the, the long format becomes more important than the, the quick one. Yet, obviously, still there's a gear towards, um, you know, the most attention, the most reactions, the most comments. Um, so maybe the machinery. And the rules changing might help there. And uh, I enjoy listening to Jack Dorsey being pulled apart by people like Kara Swisher <laughs> on things like that, because you get an insight into the fact that these people know that there's a problem and then they are actively working on a solution. It's just such a titanic problem to face. That's a good point or points. I mean, maybe we have to set the terms. There are certain people who will talk on social media and they'll have a certain amount of traffic, um, which again will be part of um the fuel or commodity of mainstream media who want to uh, keep a certain agenda or keep an army um we can talk on twitter with a certain kind of safe space i mean this here is a safe space and we know all right so it, it even if you have that kind of attitude here i'm not sure if people like well katie hopkins is off twitter now but there are others like her right and i don't think they're necessarily going to become good people soon so you know (laughs) 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 Simon Simon, what do you think of your own question so for my for myself I've got to come from you know my point of view and and where I you know receive a lot of my information from uh, and it is very much opinion based so you will I, I look at a lot of YouTube uh, for my for for sort of getting my ideas and things like that. So in recent times, uh, Ollie's favourite person's come up a couple of times. Uh, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> um, uh, well, sorry, throw salt over the shoulder, um, and and a few Ben Shapiro's and and Candy Owens have also come up as well, and they are all incredibly controversial uh, personalities, um, depending on where you stand. And for myself, I find at a point I was, I thought I was quite a, a liberal person in, in some respects and where I stood on, on certain things. But having spent more and more time looking at, you know, lots of YouTube and so forth, I think I'm more becoming conservative with a small C <laughs> of that. I believe that, you know, if the person has done the re- relevant research and they're providing facts in regards to um, uh, workplace uh, um, uh, sorry, sort of like pay uh, disputes and um, other workplace issues or, or social issues, and the facts are presented correctly and and backed up. I have to agree with them 
I, I, I have to, um, if in, in my respect. So I don't know if anyone else feels similar or uh, disagrees. Why would, why would um, you agreeing with facts be something that could be disputed? Well, I, I think there's an interesting point here to the both of you, which is something that I, I constantly come back to in, in debates, particularly one sort of, how what would you say, modern partisan debate, if you will, um, which is the work of Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher of sorts. Um, he had a concept called pluralism, and his particular take on pluralism is that even with the same starting point, the same society, the same facts, the same um, approach, you know, anything, any variable you could name, you can still, by the smallest margin, end up with a very different outcome from the same input. You could hear one set of, you could hear a set of facts and one person can take away two very, or two people can take away two very different things from that in the end. And I think that's an interesting point, um, both politically, philosophically, socially, that actually, whereas one person can hear, okay, there's, this is an issue, and this is how we resolve it. Another person can hear the same thing and come away differently. And I think it's interesting to say that there are no alternative facts. I think, I think if, if Trump has taught us anything, there are no alternative facts, but there are alternative interpretations and alternative solutions. And I think sometimes people get the facts mixed up with the solutions. The uh, Ben Shapiro's of the world who like to shout, facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah, but yeah, but your interpretation of the facts will really bugs the hell out of me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can, you can read what you wish to a degree. Um, yeah, people like Ben Shapiro, especially Candice Owens, they like to present facts in a way that they believe they understand, and the people who, for want of a better way of saying it, that are more left, are not necessarily adhering to or want to ignore because they are in some way uh, weak or snowflakes, and that. I think is an issue in itself. You can't present these things as though you own them. You can't own the facts. They're there to be interpreted. I think if in the case of Candace Owens and her association with PragerU, that's largely presenting graphs and charts without indices and without any context whatsoever. That's just basically bullshit merchantry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she wants to sell her book. That's, that's all she wants to do. Good luck. I know. It's a bad book. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. She's been uh, found out, and the black community are not happy with her at all. Um, and I can agree with them uh, at some points as well. So we'll we'll move on to our next question. If no one else has anything else to say on on our previous one, no. Okay, so our next question is regarding uh, virtue signaling and also virtue ethics. What do we think about them um, in online and in person? And I believe that Ollie is going to take this one. Sorry, there's a lot of my face at the start of this one. Don't worry. <laughs> it's fine. It's a great um, face. <laughs> I tried for the best. I've got the, you know, please beautify me switch on on, on uh, Zoom here. Um, so I think the most important thing to recognize here is the fact that much like we were talking about or, and raised with council culture last time, it's such a huge issue because it's not a modern thing. Uh, the context is modern, but the actual process is a very old one. Virtual signaling is actually kind of important. I think an interesting point raised um, during some of my researches, and I'm really disappointed because I've lost the piece of paper where I wrote this down. There was a gentleman of a conservative bend who was actually mentioning, um, he's an evolutionary biologist, and his point was that vir without virtual signaling, society as we know it would not exist. 
um, which is an interesting point to get from a conservative small c, um, because you know without some performative action to show people that you have an intent, you have an ethic, you have a uh, a, a creed by which you live, you you can't kind of include them in your story. You can't make a whole society as a whole. Um, so all of human achievement basically rests upon some form of virtue signaling, be that to get a mate in the most basic terms or to form a society or a group. Um, however, another point interestingly raised, which I found quite interesting, was the fact that, yeah, like cancel culture, um, uh, virtue signaling is being used as a, a stick to beat the left with, um, as these things often are. Um, and frankly, I think the left maybe has it coming. I am... Um, relatively center left myself but i think there's an interesting point raised where when you go ethics is something that you've lived ethics is something you've experienced and something that you have created and chipped away over time like a like a ongoing work of art that you perform through your whole life but i think there's an interesting phenomenon with um with a lot of left-wing and progressive left-wing is the wrong term because it's more of an economic thing but progressive policy where people are caring a lot about stuff of which they have no personal um, experience no personal dog in the race nothing but the fact that maybe it's you know it's the um cause du jour you know um and at that point when you start to overreach your experience it starts to look shallow it starts to look kind of hollow and difficult to maintain um, the interesting example given was actually um, student protests about apartheid in South Africa. And the, in the space of a year, it went from no one had ever even heard of it to everybody really, really cared. And not, it's not that the end was bad. The end result was a good thing. But just the fact that you find yourself wondering, OK, how much of this is performative and how much of this is real? Um, you know, and that depends on where you come from and, and how you are. And, you know, in, in some cases, personally, for me, it makes me very hesitant to comment or to virtue signal or to express ethics in certain areas in which I don't feel like I have a have a dog in the race unless someone specifically asks me of course very comprehensive um I would add to that in that there is obviously a very good place that people um have in their mind as to what this world can be like and if they don't see that being reflected in their day-to-day -day, then they will obviously find ways to talk about it especially online and when they do find a cause that maybe they've just bumped into whether it be the one that you just cited ollie then you can't necessarily blame them for wanting to actually be part of it and doing the right thing but yeah obviously there's going to be people who are doing it for social acumen um yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can really add to it any further than that. Ollie, you've actually done really well for yourself there. <laughs> I try my best. <laughs> you have some kind of point system or prizes, you know, that'd be good. Uh, I'm not giving them out this week. Sorry, no, no points, no points. We'll get a Stanley no prize. That would be good. Alice or Reshma, do you have anything to add to that? I'd just say that I really like that you described it as shallow. Like, say, can be shallow. I think that's a like a fantastic way to kind of describe what virtue signaling can come across as sometimes. So, on the one hand, it can be people jumping on a cause to because it resonates with them for some reason, even though it's relatively new. But then, on the other hand, it can be shallow as well. I thought that was a really good description. Yes, yeah, I did like that as well. I was thinking because there's a term that has been sort of popping up quite a lot and um, that's the, the pseudo moralism and um, I think that when it, it was 
similarly it was you um, Oliver last week that was talking about uh, moral panic I thought about that a lot uh, later that um, how we are deciding um, to practice in a sense lessons in humility you know <laughs> and so you know you have to sort of be quite in a you have to be in a humble place I think to learn to want to learn from something and um, I don't know that we're actually practicing that before we've even come to a point of trying to form an opinion on something that we've never heard of before it's about how we're taking in that information in the first place and I think like with most stories you know even if you read a, a piece of fiction you are asked to look at the characters and their stories and and make a judgment call on, on where you lie um, and how you align you know how you align yourself do you relate to the characters so we're being asked in a sense to to create a a, a picture and um, a, a moral argument constantly in life. And I don't think that that has to be um, looked at as phony or you know, fake in any way. It, it helps us learn and become who we are eventually going to be. So um, I think maybe it's about the objective in, in, the, in these narratives. Are we, we need to decide what our objectives are when we come into an argument. What do you think? I think, um, I think there's one point that, yeah, I, I actually really agree with that. And um, the one thing I would kind of back up the statement with, because I do feel kind of very unusually negative with this whole approach. But the one thing I would say is that, um, especially as you were saying with moral panic, I think the one thing that constantly crosses my mind, especially in the last year or so, has just been the fact that um, it was once said to me that a, a gift given with the expectation of return is not a gift at all. And I feel like sometimes with virtue signaling or something like that, the best kind of virtue signaling is the kind where, you know, you put boots on the ground or bums on seats or hands in the air and you keep quiet and you don't ask for anything back. You just do. And I think that just doing is the most important thing. And, you know, like you have to ask yourself every time you find yourself in that position, do I in doing this, is this a gift that I'm giving to make the world a better place? Or is this perhaps something that I'm doing with the expectation of return? I mean, sometimes that's okay. That's fine. You have to look up to yourself. But I think in case of, friend of mine, for instance, tonight is attending a rally down in Parliament Square for um, reasons which I'm sure will become very plain. Um, and, you know, in that case, I don't think they intend to be on the front page of a newspaper. I think they intend to make their feelings known. And I think that's a good thing. You know, but then, you know, when you get the um, Piers Morgans of the world virtue signaling by spitting a sausage roll out on TV or walking out of a TV show into a more lucrative career, that's where you sort of start to think, okay, that is not a gift. That is a backhanded self-gift if you see what I mean. Oh. So Maybe we should investigate why people tend to do this kind of thing. I mean we've had various different parts of history really shift the public's um, faith in those who have power whether we're talking about Watergate or Reagan Contra affair or we're talking about over in this side of the world in the UK when it comes to factors dealing with privatization and the minor strikes it just goes on you know, Blair's treatment of weapons of mass destruction, at some point you feel that now you've got this um, salvo before you, whether it be called Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, you can use that in order to transform the world that you have around you just by pressing buttons. And even if um, people will be performative about that, it speaks to a higher social goal that sometimes we think is just beyond us, no matter who we vote for or in 2015 when Russell Brand tells you not to vote for anyone. So, you know. Yeah, um, I, I, I definitely do understand the performative nature of 
you know certain actions um when the, the black lives matter movement um kicked off after george floyd's death uh, last year there was a push on social media to black out your profile and i took a moment just a moment maybe you know that afternoon to think do i want to join this 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 action this movement um obviously knowing who i am and my 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 family and so forth i feel that i i should be supporting um uh, the message as well but having done my research into you know the 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 group as a whole i don't agree with everything that they have said or done the movement has been in my opinion hijacked by certain people who have goals that aren't necessarily about um equality for for myself they're looking for once again for me vengeance um you know for maybe things that happened many many years ago for things that happened for george floyd for uh, the fact that they may have not got that job because they thought that they lost it out to someone who was caucasian as well and I, I, I often I, you know, speak to people in, in my community as well. And, and that's the first thing that comes out of their mouth sometimes is, well, if I was white, I would have got that loan or, or so and, and that. And I understand there is institutional racism in certain parts. I do understand that. But on the other side, for me as well, I've, I've been told, work hard, try not to get yourself in too much trouble. And things will come to you uh, as well, because that is how society is built. We are part of this. We are the society. We are part of this society uh, as, as well. And um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, as I say, these are all sort of my personal feelings within it. And, you know, this is what I share. And I, I, I'm glad, as John said, this is a space where I can share it with you guys uh, as well. I'm keen to talk about this later on. Like, yeah. I disagree with so much you've said, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> cool. Fireworks, Good. fun. Cool. Um, but yeah, cool. Lee, yeah, do keep on doing your host thing. Oh, wait, Reshma has a question. Why later? <laughs> yeah, bring it now. Because the thing is, if this video is called what it is to do with cancer culture, <laughs> I don't know if you can stay on this particular part of the topic for as long. I, I've already given it some time. You know, mm. it's not even me. I'm not even supposed to be hosting today. I've got to stop this shit. What the? No, fuck? no, that, that that's fine because the, the Simon, take thing, over. Get back the, in that chair. The only <laughs> thing I was going to add to that, of course, you can come back, is just something I picked up, which was about Jean Piaget, um, the Swiss psychologist and his research partner, uh, Barbel Inhelder. Um, they wrote together for years, but in 1958, they came up with uh, a concept of formal operational development stages as well. And one of those stages can be called the messianic stage. Um, and this is taken from an abstract from Jean J. Rockman from the University of Hamburg, Faculty of Education. And it was his uh, work on educational psychology in, in uh, June 2020. Um, uh, what he mentions in the abstract is here's a stage model is used to explain why in late adolescence and early adulthood, many young people are prone to adopt idealistic and utopian social and political ideas which they reassert with an almost zealous vigor i see that everywhere over social media and and so forth so 
maybe you'd like to discuss that or John, we can go back to what I said or if you have anything else. Well, to be honest, um, a, a slight callback is that what you were saying before kind of sounds as though you believe BLM is one unit when it's many different people using that idea. Um, but mm, as I said, yeah. it's, a, it's a can of worms. I wanted you to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> those worms, all over the table, man. We can't do that shit. Like that. Not, not right now. <laughs> yeah, pitchforks at dawn sometimes. But no, um, does does anyone else have anything on that uh, part? No, Ollie. I think there was one thing. There's an interesting point there that you raised with uh, how should we put the boisterousness of youth um, and idealism, and it's it's an, it's an old trope. I think um, obviously there's some there's some scientific or you know evolutionary reasons for that you know teenagers are meant to rebel as hard as possible in order to escape their parents to improve to in somehow improve the group that sort of thing and then a part of that does kind of fall into sort of some extreme ethical shifts um part of it maybe is to do with the fact that you uh you know a little knowledge is a dangerous thing you you read about how you know there's this great idea where maybe everyone doesn't have to work as much in you know, we can all be happy and, you know, as long as we're all decent human beings, it'll work out fine. But then, you know, you don't know about the other side of history. You know, that's a, com that's a common problem when I speak to people who still, um, you know, are good old fashioned communists, like, you know, not not the fun UBI kind, the really hardcore, like, here's, here's the manifesto type. And, you know, I can understand where they're coming from because there have been points where I've been like, look, that is, that is the perfectly ideal situation. But I think maybe the... Uh, Maybe the difference is not that people get um, less inclined towards utopian ideas as they get older. They just tamper them with experience. I mean, that's something for me, um, you know, like my most deeply held ethical beliefs are still basically the same ones I've had since I was a kid. They're the ones I was raised with and I've questioned them many times. But, um, you know, over the years, I've realized that maybe the obstacles to that goal are different to what I imagine they were to begin with. You know, the obstacle to my making a better Britain is mostly, you know, for one of a better time, Daily Mail readers in Middle England. But whereas one point I thought maybe oh, it was the government. Say that again. <laughs> I was going to say, I think, you know, when I was a teenager, I figured the biggest problem in the world was, um, you know, um, money or the, or the system or like the man. And as I get older, I realized maybe it's not the man. I think it's maybe it's, the, it's people, people as a whole, you know, like maybe people aren't quite what you imagine them to be. Um, so, like I say, like people like your average Betty Mail reader, your your average Middle Englander, the kind of people that have, sorry to say it, repeatedly voted us into some considerable national trouble in the last few years. Um, you know, you start to realize it's not to put things at people's door because I think people vote or choose to do things for the right reasons. It's just that, you know, where I want to end up, the people standing in the way aren't who I thought they were. And when you're a teenager, you don't know your ass from your elbow and that it's dangerous. So I'm starting to rotate yeah. on a point here. So someone else better jump in. You're right, man. Like, definitely I can relate to a lot of that, but maybe with a bit of a slight change. Because when I was a teenager, I wanted to believe, yeah, the man is the problem. But as I've got older, even though it's very easy to think, actually, it's not necessarily the man, it's the people. I think they, they're symbiotic, yeah? The system corrupts the people. The people throw their corruptions back at the system through various different channels. We've talked about social media a lot, but there's other different channels. And that creates the mess that we're in. And mm -hmm. they seem quite linked, you know, um, how to distinguish one from the other and those who purport to be against the system when they're actually for it. It's quite manifold. 
yeah, definitely. I think it's easy to fall into sort of false dichotomy or trichotomy or however many cotomies yeah. you wish in that debate. You know, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of subtlety to the point, but you, you see where I'm coming from. You know, like the, the focus is shifted. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Great, great responses to that. Um, so I want to move on to our fourth question, um, which is, are you or we ever skeptical when well-known brands or public companies change their messaging to the latest hot topic issue? Um, I'm going to kick us off for this one. Um, so to give some examples of what I've seen um, from, from my experience of working within marketing teams and the likes, um, when the COVID-19 uh, pandemic started, um, all uh, <laughs> our entire team was told, do not speak to the press, do not speak to anybody at all, okay? We do not know what's going to go on with our events or anything of that nature at all. Do not speak to anyone at all. Okay, that's fine. That, that's absolutely fine. And then once I started to look at, you know, the, the, the sort of messaging that was coming out in regards to um, speaking about COVID, initially people were very, very reluctant to even mention the C word at all. You would have it in no emails or anything at all because probably for the right reason, you know, we weren't exactly sure what it was, how long it was going to be going on for uh, and, and that. But then as soon as we realized, so I believe that companies realized that we were going to be in this for the long haul, I got tens, twenties, thirties of emails from companies I haven't even thought about in two years, but signed up to their newsletter saying, Simon, I hope you're well. I hope you and your family are well. We care. We care about you. We care about our employees and everyone else. And that's lovely um, into Flora, but I'm not buying from you at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to buy from you. You don't care. I personally believe it's about their bottom line. It's about their bottom line. They want to keep the customers. They want to keep themselves afloat. That, and sure, that is what a company is there to do. Um, I want to talk about the Premier League now. Um, players and officials have been kneeling um, before kickoff since, uh, since the start of last season, well, middle of last season, following the death of George Floyd uh, in May last year. Um, Wilfred Zaha, a player for my team, Crystal Palace, uh, is the first, uh, first player in the Premier League to not take a, the knee. And he is a black player at that as well. Um, so I've taken the following from uh, an article on ESPN where he stated, there is no right or wrong decision. But for me personally, I feel kneeling has become a part of the pre-match routine. And at the moment, it doesn't matter whether we kneel or stand. Some of us continue to receive abuse. On the podcast, he said, why must I even wear the Black Lives Matter on the back of my top to show that we matter? This is all degrading. Finally, when people constantly want me to do Black Lives Matter talks and racial talks and like, I'm like, I'm not doing it. So you can just put Zara, Zaha spoke for us tick a box he just doesn't want to do it anymore and yeah I generally have quite a strong feeling about quotas box ticking 
um, always saying the right thing. I, I have an issue with it myself, as, as I've stated previously. Um, I do have some others, but I want to open that up. Obviously, it doesn't have to be about BLM. It can be about anything, generally, regarding the original question. I think what he's done from what you said is actually quite an interesting, powerful thing because he's kind of owning that moment and saying, hey, what are you doing about footballers and their abuse? I mean, I've got no interest in football. Like when you said Premier League, I was thinking, oh, God, no, please don't talk about football. But what we talk about here is a political issue. Um, should he take the knee or not, I suppose, would be like the really kind of basic kind of question that people probably want to go to. Um, but I think what he's done with that space is saying, hey, like, ultimately, I don't want to perform the idea of doing this. I think that's quite worthy. I mean, just from what you said, but maybe there's a counterpoint. From anyone. From anyone, Alice. Sure. I think there's, um, I think there's an interesting parallel here. And forgive my kind of crude parallel, but I think there's an interesting thing here with uh, poppies. Um, and it's a strange thing, but um, <laughs> every year people wear a poppy and they wear it for the right reason. And actually, I think that's a good thing. And personally, I'm, I'm completely behind it. I think that's, you know, it's good. It is sometimes performative. Sometimes it's not. But I think the idea behind it is that everyone does it. And I think the majority of people do wear one color or another and with one meaning or another knowing that that at that moment on that day they say okay look this is a thing that i want to do because i want to show my appreciation and you know i think obviously taking a knee is a more it's a more recent thing uh, i think doing it in every match is an interesting point when will that end will there ever be an end to that you know is that going to become a tradition that we do at every match from now on um you know there's no set day for that so it is slightly different but yeah it's an interesting point i don't think anyone in the teams, maybe there are a few people who feel pressured to do that, sure. But I think given the abuse that I've seen from some players, I think it's, it's most of them probably are doing it out of a sense of altruism, given the possible blowback. And now Simon's got his hand up. So I was just going to say, I think there was James, uh, James McLean, who's a Southern Irish player. He said he did not want to wear poppies on his shirt. Uh, he <laughs> plays for the Ireland football team. Uh, this came out last year. I think there's an element with uh, with the Irish side of things where obviously that has a whole load of baggage that comes with it. So I absolutely forgive that. And to be honest, I think that anyone who chooses not to wear one, as long as they have a valid reason, you know, that that's fair. But I mean, there are other options. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing that like, like you say, like when it's a group of individuals who can make their own individual choices about what and what not to do then it you know it becomes a different thing even though they are corporate these sponsors mm -hmm. um, it's hard to separate the individual from the group there i think uh, in, in the end the the premier league uh is a brand like anything else um the oscars uh for, for uh, the oscars are so white controversy um it was john you may be able to help me with this was this 2017 or 2018 or anyone else knows i want to say 17 2000. I, thought it was, I thought it was 2016. Okay, okay. We'll um, find out when the comments <laughs> tell us off. <laughs> please do, please do. But uh, if you don't know about that, it, it was tweeted um, that the Oscars are so white. And then you saw in following years that there was quite a large push to have more uh, minority 
um, members on the selecting boards, uh, I believe, or the selection panels uh, and, and likes. And then the year after, Moonlight, pretty good film, actually, won the Oscar. This year, we are seeing, um, I think, your first Asian uh, nominee for lead categories as well, which I think is all is great, is great. And it maybe wouldn't have stemmed from this initial pressure, let's say, that came from Twitter uh, uh, and, and, and so. So... Anyone else on that point before I move on? Yeah, okay. So the when you say that initial pressure, would you say it, it is it pressure to to react, pressure to do something, or pressure to dialogue, in your opinion? Like where, in a sense, where is that, where does the objective lie? Do you, do you know? I don't know about that, sorry. So myself personally, I believe that this was a neat so the the fact that Moonlight won. And, and other films like that or other people were nominated was a knee-jerk reaction from Hollywood uh, from the Oscars to appease people um, for the time being. And we've seen, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the likes of Black Panther making billions and billions of dollars, which means that you can make more money and sell more merchandising and so forth. So this pressure initially... Sorry, could, could you repeat the question? Sorry, I'm just going back to it. Yeah. So it's about whether it's the pressure to do something about it, do something real, you know, to create real change. Or mm. what, what are the objectives, in a sense, for that pressure? And I mean, does it even have one voice, which I doubt? In my opinion, I don't necessarily think it has a goal for them, apart from, once again, to keep their bottom lines up, to make sure that you know, they keep the money rolling in. Um, there's another abstract uh, from uh, Exercising Concepts of Virtue Ethics in Business Culture uh, by uh, Mitashi Tripathi and Dr. Itshiri Serangi. Business culture is an intriguing platform. Each company seeks better positions, name, popularity, security, and success, overpowered with technology and intensifying outsourcing today. The world seems very mechanical. Achieving goals and targets are no more velvety in business culture. So I don't know if anyone disagrees or agrees with that point. So I don't know if it answered your question. Can you read that again? Of, of, of course. Uh, business culture is an intriguing platform. Each company seeks better position, name, popularity, security and success. Overpowered with technology and intensifying outsourcing, Today, the world seems very mechanical. Achieving goals and targets are no more velvety in business culture. What, what does velvety mean in this context? Sorry. Velvety. Um, I would say when I think of velvety, it's sort of like the, the, that utopia concept of, you know, it's all very nice and, you know, everything is smooth over and everyone is happy and equal and, you know, we skip <laughs> and uh, sing around the maypole and things of that nature. <laughs> <laughs> I, I personally, when I think of vel yeah, of velvety, does anyone else have a, a different definition of, of that? <laughs> I can um, definitely speak to what you were saying regarding um, changing the 
the square on your Facebook because I decided not to do it as well because it felt like this idea of um, standing by the whole um, Black Lives Matter thing was a way of like um, business folding in an idea into itself like it had done with music beforehand like the whole music industry um, was deciding to like go along with this as well because I, I remember reading this in the enemy on that day um, I decided not to do it. Uh, people are sick to death of, of the virtue signaling culture, um, taking really, really important themes and making it um, almost like like playthings or tools for people to prop themselves up with. So even if, um, what's the name of that player that refused to take the knee that you told us about, Simon? What's Wilfred Zaha. So even if Wilfred is kind of going against um, a, a protest by suggesting that that protest has already got so much power that in itself reinvitalizes us thinking about it rather than performative actions which can become quite robotic um, taking this back to your statement about business business just wants things to keep moving so we can make money but when people get in the way or when deaths happen then business has to find a way of reappropriating that and you know reappropriating that even so yeah that's my two cents or oh, two pennies. I'm English. <laughs> we tend to know when we're being manipulated or when we're being gently guided towards something. So things like when things are being ideas are being marketed to us or when we're, you know, subject to, to propaganda. I think even if we, we haven't been taught to recognize it, there's there's something there. You can kind of feel it. And I think sometimes we allow it. We allow it, you know, we're, we're okay with it. It's just, uh, it's, um, it's almost a contractual agreement, you know, <laughs> that, you know, if, if you're willing, then, you know, and especially like in, um, with products. So you, I think this was based on the idea that brands are jumping on ideas. So, so from that perspective, if a, if a brand sort of takes up something and decides to fly that flag for a while, it, um, I think we, we know we're do, they're doing it. And if we're, let's say we support that brand, all we need for them is to, in a sense, make that, um, that message, that hot topic part of their message. And it makes us feel better about being associated with that brand also. So, um, which is a shame, but I think that we as a society overall have kind of accepted that as a norm in our behaviors because there's, there's much other change, I don't know. No, so, you're right. Uh, brands have constantly push this idea of by the use of Twitter. We lost you a bit there, John. You lost me. Shit. All right, I'm back. So, <laughs> um, when it comes to brands, they're either trying to present to be our saviour or our friend or our confidant in some way and through social media again have various different ways of personifying what they do. Um, and that in itself is quite scary. If you believe that Pizza Hut is talking to you when you're looking at a tweet and you've got a serious problem, but yet we will respond in kind, we'll share it. I mean, I won't, I don't, I don't buy Pizza Hut, but I've seen fuckers that do. So what I'm really saying is, you've essentially got a world where we've actually lost the idea of corporate um, entities being anything other than the money, even though we know that's the actual fact. Um, I mean, how many times do you see people getting really angry about um, a film not making enough money? You know, they're, they're angry that these big corporate giants haven't made two billion out of that new superhero movie. 
get over it. It's not really like, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Stories matter, fair enough. Yeah. But what they've created is something to make money out of your nostalgia value. So, sorry. The, that's, yeah, the that's argument at the moment. The argument between um, Endgame and Avatar being number one at the box office is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Like one's 12 years old and the other one's just playing and everything that I love. So get out of my face. Uh, so, and the other thing I saw is... We have to be people who haven't seen it. So don't worry, yeah. if you don't know what Avatar <laughs> is, don't worry, we're not going to go into it. Move on, please. Don't worry. Um, one thing I was going to say, there was a tweet last week, I believe from Burger King that said women should be in the kitchen. Wow. That was a, quite a large tweet with an advert. And if you haven't seen it, it is one of the biggest missteps I've ever seen since Pepsi and Kendall Jenner three years ago. Everyone should have a Pepsi and feel happy. Wow. But the um, body of the tweet was talking about the statistics of male to female chefs in, in, in the general space and that women should be going into that space but going back to what we said last week we want a lot of brands and a lot of companies want to uh, you know offer that catchy title or tweet or, or image that is going to get people talking and what's the old adage uh no pus- bad publicity still publicity or something of that nature and it, it got a lot of retweets and um all the other you know, Wendy's, Pizza Hut, they all have that piled on and they have these little discussions between them. But yeah, I, I just thought that one was interesting. So just to clarify, they were essentially trying to get women into management and that was, you. they were using the old kind of sexist trope of them being in the kitchen. Yeah. It's actually positive, but trolling the audience. So yeah. yeah fine. Fucking hell. But most people do not read the body of the tweet or the replies they just see that, get angry, and then start going, ah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I think that's very clever. I, I, don't, I didn't see it, but I, I think it's funny and clever. So um, anyone else on that, or can I move on? I think there's a quick moment where I, I think maybe it's worth a little shout out, is that um, I think we were talking about Bob Chipman, uh, Movie Bob, during the week, Simon. Um, yeah. Great YouTuber, does brilliant social commentary and media commentary. Somehow he manages to throw in effortless stuff in there, I don't know how. But quite recently he re-upped a piece called Pop Goes the Gander, parts one and two, which is very, very cool. It's, um, it's sort of a revisit of how propaganda ceased to be in your face in the 50s and then became something else in the 60s during the Cold War. And, and I think it dovetails nicely into this because there's an element there where I think at one point he says, it stops being like, support your country because it's the right thing to do. And it starts being like, well, you're a gentleman discernment. You know, I'm going to try and sell you something, but let's do it anyway. We both know this is a joke. I feel like this is the next step of that, where it's like, you're a person of discernment. You know, I'm a corporate entity and capitalism is the end of everything. But like, here's a funny joke. Like, and people will just go with it because they're like, yeah, I, you know, I know. I know you know that I know. We're cool. We're fine just throw it at me and then it still goes in it still sticks there you're still talking about this advert you know what i mean <laughs> can't get it out can't get the image out <laughs> I, I know i won a, a whopper so <laughs> it might happen um yeah dusty it still works so i'm sure we can link said thing but um, yeah I, I think it's an interesting point and uh 
yeah, that perhaps the um, the irony is more of an advert than the advert itself sometimes. Yeah, advertisers, uh, marketing teams have really focused on um, bringing psychology, you know, back, well, in, as you were saying, in, into their, their messaging, because they know that certain phrases, certain words, certain imagery flicks that response in our in our brains to to either get angry happy sad whatever um um same thing same way as we get about music uh, as well and um some of the job listings you will see will be specifically for a particular marketing agency that for one um advert that really wants to emote a particular feeling in a particular group and i don't see anything wrong with that you know like if you if you if you understand how you know people will react to certain things and you're going to make money off it so be it in some respects like sales funneling on youtube where you'll listen to someone speak for 15 minutes on an advert and ask you oh i'm not going to tell you what it is just yet i'm not going to tell you i'm going to tell we'll get to the end of the video and then they've sold you everything and the idea and you think by the end of the 15 minutes okay look whatever i'll pay you the 997 pounds just shut up let me have the free course or let me have the course and that has been developed from um you know the tactics that the more traditional advertisers have used as well so that's just my uh, shillings um so my final question is in a society that is aiming to be more progressive and inclusive will cancel culture continue or will it transform into something more positive Reshma. Ah, that's a great question. Um, I can't tell the future, so I can't answer it. Please try. <laughs> <laughs> I would like very much for it to, to transform into something amazing. Um, this society, this world, that we share. I would love for it to be, to be beautiful and inclusive and a, a massive, massive safe space for everybody. Do I think that will happen? No, <laughs> it won't happen. Um, I think that the first issue is, I will come back to that idea of the objective. We don't seem to have an objective um, at any juncture of, of any um, transformation. It's, it's like we transform for the sake of transforming or, or accidentally. I just think we, we literally transform accidentally. I'll go with that. And, um, and that's a worry for me. That's a very big worry for the, the species. And um, the little pockets, each pockets of communities that we, um, we engage in and with, as um, Oliver was saying earlier, unless there's a set creed, an actual real idea of who we are and what our, um, where our lines are drawn and what we accept and what we're about, unless that's very clear at some point in any group, I don't know how we can have an objective in the first place. And so, so secondly, how does this apply to cancel culture? Um, all we're saying is no, just no, 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 but we're not finding the solutions. We're just saying no to people no to ideas, no, you can't say this, no, you can't say that, but what's the solution? Where are we actually trying to get this place to? Where are we trying to get to with this? 
that's the part that worries me. And I think that's just le leading to more disillusionment, definitely for me. So I don't know if anybody else feels that it's a safe space out there on the internet, in the world, on the high street. It, I don't feel safe. And that's sort of very in line with what's going on right now in the streets. What do you think? Great point. Great point. Has anyone else got to add to that? Yeah, I agree, Rashma. Like, um, with what you're saying about, you know, there should be a safe space. There's not. There definitely should be. Um, but, like, moving forward, maybe, you know, like I was saying earlier, like, by just dismissing people and dismissing cancel culture, not cancel culture, by just saying, like Rashma was saying then, like, no, you're wrong, and not allowing people to admit their mistakes and elaborate and ask the questions about stuff they don't understand. Um, if we just keep saying we can't just cancel these people, then maybe we will get slightly more towards that nice and safe environment. Maybe I'm not an idealist. But... I think idealism is beautiful. I think we're all idealists in this room. The thing is, we all mm. have different ways of getting to that ideal place. That is if we have a vision of it. Um, and I don't think it's particularly fair to ask the world to have that shared vision because different cultures, different sensibilities, how many um, capitalistic structures have warped countries beyond um, their actual national um, ideas of self. You know, if someone told me, you know, I, I'm an English citizen, they all have a different idea of it than someone else down the road, you know, let alone um, what it means to be British. So. Yeah, there, there are many reasons to feel disillusioned, Reshma, and I've already pointed out many other ways to be disillusioned. <laughs> I think, um, seeing as we're talking about the future, I might finally go on a rant on Rantbox. Um, yeah. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think, um, again, this is pure speculation, as Reshma says, this is the future and no one can really say for sure. Um, and obviously, I'd like to put out a, an idea, but I think that with all ideas and with all concepts and things like that, while half the world can embrace it, the other half can simultaneously be falling apart. So um, take it with a grain of salt. But one thing I think I see with those poor abused Daily Mail and Middle Englishers that I, I horribly spat on earlier and, and all people who, who suffer for this problem of not knowing where to go, not knowing um, how to arrive at a solution. I, I've, the one thing that I keep coming back to is the fact that, um, how best to put this, um, the root of, to understand a flower, you have to understand the root and stem of a, of a plant. You see what I mean? To, to understand how the top works, you must understand the bottom. And I think not enough people understand the bottom of a problem to really see the top. Like they understand the reaction, but they don't understand the why. For instance, um, you know, why is being sexist bad? Or why is, you know, um, stealing bad? Or why is murder bad? Essentially, why are they bad? Like, yes, they are bad. I mean, even I agree with all those things being bad, but why? And then often it comes down to very basic concepts, very simple things. Um, I think Terry Pratchett said it best when, you know, the root of all evil is treating people like things. You know, if you can look at a situation with that sort of, casuistry attitude and say okay i'm in a problem i've got this moral context what is you know how am i gonna in this context not treat people like things how am i going to do take the lessons that i've learned elsewhere and apply them to this situation and i think maybe that's 
the problem with cancel culture with Twitter as a whole is the fact that people see a thing out of context, they get angry about it, but then they never say why. Uh, they never look at the context. They never look at the morality of the situation. Um, there's, an, uh, there's an excellent one, which I'm sure, I'm not sure if we're gonna get around to story time with John, but um, Rattleover is an excellent example of that, is that you have to understand the whole branching problem before you can make any kind of decision because make a decision halfway along the path is just gonna lead to disaster. Do we have time for that? I'm keen to do some of it and then we'll finish it. In the next so, sorry, no, I, I was just responding to Ollie in oh, sure. the fast paced nature of 360 media, uh, 24 hour media as well. Um, instant um, gratification as well from you know the likes of Instagram likes, validation, Facebook and, and comments coming back and forth. Do people have the time to do the necessary research to get to the root cause of some of these issues or statements? They do. They actually fucking do. Like, they just don't necessarily um, benefit from the 24-hour clock of all these different distractions that are going on. Sorry, Ollie, that was your question, but I was just... I was needing no, to say that. I think there's... there's an, no, I think it's good that you jumped in. Um, I, I think there's an element there where... Um, <laughs> sorry, I, again, this. A thing that was often said about music is that music's development has ceased because there are no pockets of development. There are no isolated places for which new things can take root. I disagree with that, actually. I think that's not really true. But you could say the same thing of morality and of you know, social problems is that the internet has forced us all into a place where what would normally take hundreds of years to occur and now happens in a space of months. That's part of the reason why we have so much unrest, why there are Christian fundamentalists who would happily set fire to any number of minorities on a burning cross, you know, because they've been forced into the 21st century when they should have two more centuries to get behind it. Um, so yeah, this is what the point at which maybe um, the make or break of that situation is down to people, individuals, I think, um, you know, the, to whether you're going to go against your nature uh, and, and make a sensible human decision or act like an animal at that point and i don't mean that in the derogatory sense i mean that in the sort of frank herbert sense of you know will you gnaw off your own leg to get out of a trap or will you wait for someone to come rescue you you know like sure. will you implode under the weight of moral choices all day long or will you you know stop tape stop grasp hold of the thing and you know pull it apart what you were saying about why is quite prevalent i mean people obviously will not commit the three examples that you gave because they know they will get in trouble but they may not necessarily ask themselves the philosophical question as to why this is a knock-on effect for other people unless you're a psychopath and killing is your thing but yeah sexism um racism people think that they people i'm generalizing but there's a significant amount of people that are let's say people like rowan atkinson feel that they're handcuffed in that they cannot say and do what they used to do because they will get in trouble. They're not knowing why what they were doing is in some way problematic. Uh, maybe he's not the best example because he's actually talking about the freedom to do satirical comedy, um, but his statements about it seem to wash over into other more nuanced territory that I don't think he truly understands, mm. um, but yeah. I think there's an interesting, sorry guys to, to keep buying it. Um, there's an interesting point there raised with comedy, which I think it, um, you can have two people do the very same school of comedy and come out with two very different things. For instance, um, two people I admire very much, Rowan Atkinson, who feels 
chafed by the bonds of not being able to do what he wants to do. But also someone like Daniel Sloss, who is far worse, far yeah. worse, but has the sort of moral and logical backup to everything he says. You can't fault him. He's bulletproof. You know, like, um, and he talks about things. I mean, I, I saw him live and I came out of the theater with my hands on my head like, oh, my God, like the last the third act of that show was too much. But I couldn't fault him for it. I could never, you know, I couldn't raise a hand to it. I was just like, yeah, fair enough. You know exactly what you're saying. You know why you're saying it. If that's what you want to say, go right ahead. Um, I think to be offended by someone like that just shows not how bad he is, but how bad you are <laughs> to some extent. And that's maybe what we all require is that extra effort that, you know, maybe it's a meritocracy of values, perhaps. With that, I'm going to bring this episode of, uh, of Rantbox to a close. I want to thank you guys for joining me today um, and then give you an opportunity to introduce yourselves once again to anyone who doesn't know you. So this week, I would like Alice, please start. So hi, I'm Alice. I'm a further education lecturer in the Northwest. Classic. Anyone else? Who's next? Oh, you're so nice. Come on. <laughs> Ollie, can you go ahead, please? Sure. Um, <laughs> my name's Ollie. I'm a musician and a music producer um, in London. And according to Simon, I'm also a philosopher, so that's fun. Um, I mean, it was actually me who wrote on the uh, description that you're a philosopher. Oh, was it? Oh, well, in yeah, that yeah. case... John's to blame for when I... <laughs> it's very true, though. Um, nice to meet you, Holly. Um, I'm John Clay. Um, began Rantbox TV last year due to wanting to have nuanced conversation that didn't end up with um, angry messages and people getting irate in threads. So here we are talking about these things without throwing our um, the, you know, the baby out of the dishwater, whatever that statement is. Um, if you want to know more about me, there's a description box. You can go there and see more. Um, we will talk about Martina Navratilova at some point. I'm hoping next video. Um, Simon did the right thing by ending this one because we've gone over time. Um, and this yeah, is sorry about that. It's a very nuanced conversation. So just to stick it in at the end would have been wrong. So good mm. call by you. Okay. Uh, sorry, and Reshma, please. I'm Reshma. I'm an artist art therapist and mentor mostly working in sort of gang mediation and anti-radicalization and i'm simon mitchell um i'm an events producer and business development manager uh based in sussex at the moment um and that's me so you guys will be able to find our next episode next friday and we have a rant box tv episode every Friday. So I hope you'll continue to join us. And from me and for everyone else, goodbye. Bye bye. 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 <laughs>